0: A Boston success story, Rhythm Pharmaceuticals brought to market an innovative orphan therapy treating a rare genetic disorder called bardet beetle syndrome, which causes obesity. I'm Dwayne Schultes, and on this Vital Health Podcast, I'm speaking to Dr. David Meeker, the chairman, president, and CEO of Rhythm Pharmaceuticals. Dr. Meeker was formerly the president and CEO of Genzyme. David, truly a pleasure. Thank you for your hospitality this morning. Dwayne, it's great to be on. Now, lightning rarely strikes twice in this industry. One of the hardest things to do is to be a serial entrepreneur, particularly in biotech. Now, you've been involved in two groundbreaking companies, both Rhythm as well as Genzyme, that have bought to market very narrow targeted therapies for very small indications. What is it that attracts you to that sector?
1: Well, Duane, it's not so much that it's an orphan disease that attracts me. I think I'm most attracted to um, areas where there's a clear unmet medical need, where the biology is very well understood, and, and there's a solution, a uh, potential path forward, and something we can do about that. So it's not, it just turns out that there's more orphan diseases, I think, that fall in that category of true unmet medical needs. And of course, as you work through the biology, you may be able to get to a solution. So I think it's. Ended up that I've worked on more orphan diseases, but fundamentally, I think I approach this way most of us in the industry do, which is trying to figure out where you can make a difference and do you have a good good approach to doing that.
0: You know, if you look at... There was a Nature article about 2015, if I'm not mistaken, that looked at the scope of the available indications for development, and it found that the vast majority of the orphan indications, and it's an oxymoron. But the ones that have been developed are the big orphans, <laughs> if that makes sense. You know, but the ones that are left, eighty percent of them are one in one million or smaller. That means your potential market is is three hundred and thirty people. What are the challenges trying to run a business to identify such a small market and, and try and make it profitable? Because you gotta you gotta make it work.
1: Yeah, I've always believed uh, since I came into the industry that, you know, people give a lot of credit correctly to the Orphan Disease Act and the advantages it gave to incentivize companies to pursue small diseases. You get some tax breaks, you get, uh, um, you know, some prolonged uh, exclusivity in some cases. But I think the reality is that uh, Henry Tamir, the original CEO of uh, Genzyme, founding CEO When he priced uh, Gaucher disease, the treatment for Gaucher disease at a price which allowed that to be a business, it was the highest price therapy at that point in time. I think it it shocked uh, people to a certain extent. But the reality was that he recognized that, yes, if you have a very small population, it's not necessarily cheaper to develop that drug. And if you don't, charge a price that allows you to recoup your costs, it won't be developed. So suddenly there was a business model. And I think it was from that moment on where the industry said, oh, well, there is a way actually to you know do the research here, develop the drugs and have a sustainable business model. Now, your question is, with those remaining, is there a point at which it's too small?
0: Yeah. And as a CEO, where do you, even if you have great science, there's got to be a reality there where it's like, well, heck, we can't, we just can't make this one work.
1: Yeah. So I think um, ideally, if you're a standalone company with only one disease that you're pursuing, then your options are limited. If you're a larger company and you have a portfolio approach, you can pursue smaller diseases with the fact that net-net you're going to be okay, uh, number one. But I also think that question starts even earlier, which is not even so much... Can you foresee having a sustainable business there? Can you even do the work? Can you study it? Are there enough patients right. to enroll in a clinical trial that allows you to prove safety and efficacy for that population? So, yes, there are some severe limitations about size of population. Now, what's interesting, um, you know, we've had, and I'm going to forget the exact disease it was for, but um, at an academic level, a academician who developed an N of 1 uh, treatment, which the FDA helped him um get through to treat that individual patient so i think there's models that will evolve to deal with the fact that some of these are just too small to be a sustainable business but the science is still there that might allow you to and the
0: science is going that way i think that's the that's the situation i mean look at CRISPR cas9 those are by definition n of one treatments you know and they're coming
1: they are coming they'll they'll that CRISPR is a very powerful technology that will be applied to large and small diseases. Sure. But to your point, the, the science is progressing in a way which is going to allow us to get at, in a more efficient way, some of these incredibly small diseases.
0: Now, part of the reason why we're in town this week is we're participating in the bioconference. We're releasing our study on the Inflation Reduction Act tomorrow. One of the things that came out of our math when we were doing the modeling it's going to create an enormous challenge on the orphan drug space because you're trading particularly early stage, very small revenue for peak sales. We know that the smaller indications are hard, as we've just been discussing, to get a positive ROI. What do you think are the implications then if you're not going to be able to you know, stack up or get more indications because then you pay a penalty?
1: Yeah, I think the IRA is worrisome for many different reasons, of course. Um, in terms of the orphan disease space, that you know, aspect of the IRA, which says uh, you're excluded and protected if you only pursue one indication, but you become potentially uh, eligible um, if you pursue more than that. And I think what they were trying to manage there was uh, this idea that, you know, companies are using the orphan disease as a backdoor into larger indications. And um, so I think that was, you know, they were trying to discourage that. I think the reality is, is that, you know, science, it's not backdoor to anything. I think science, um, invariably, you build on what was there before. So there's a natural progression. Uh, It's a long cycle industry. If you could look back, you know, jump ahead 10 years and look at how your portfolio is going to evolve, then great. You would say, look, those were small or that one wasn't going to work. And this is the one that, you know, I really want to bear down on. And you could pick your one. But at the time you're making these decisions in a developmental portfolio, you don't know. So you just follow the science, which invariably likely leads you step by step to potentially more than one indication if you have a therapy that that fits that role. So you know that's not great. Um, I think, you know, let's take the rhythm example um, because I think it might be instructive here. So as you highlighted in the beginning, we're uh, developing a treatment, treatments for um, patients who have a genetic cause of their underlying early onset obesity and severe hunger, this hyperphagia they experience. And we have a very specific therapy that is a replacement therapy for a very specific pathway. And these patients have a deficiency in that pathway, we replace it. Now, our first three genes that we got approved for, we are now coming up on three years in the market, and we have tens of patients on treatment. <laughs> Obviously, not as sustainable. We knew this going in, we didn't put a sales force in place. We just made the drug available. We haven't done anything really to promote it or otherwise. <laughs> That's fascinating. So you're just going organically through the community. So we went organically at that time, recognizing it was small. Barnet beetle, which you highlighted again in the beginning, um, is another genetic cause. And it's larger and, and again, I think um, sustainable as a business. And so we're working it that way. But going back to the IRA... If we had known that the IRA was going to be in place, we probably wouldn't have pursued the first one because the FDA is regulating us not as a pathway single disease, but as a gene by gene which affects that pathway disease. So there's probably five to 10 genes that have an impact in that pathway. Some very small, some maybe a little bit larger. Again, I think everybody, society, patients for sure, want you to pursue the science and not be making decisions because, gee, you're only going to treat tens of patients here, whereas you may be able to treat a few thousand over there. So it would for sure have a big impact. The bigger impact, because I would argue and people might argue, yeah, but even if you pursue multiple indications, you're too small. Um, You're probably not going to trigger the Medicare. And genetic diseases in general, many of those patients don't live to Medicare age, so they would have to become eligible for Medicare for other reasons. And so you might view that you're protected. The reality is, yes, that might be true. The problem is the ripple effect is the uncertainty. Right. And and that is where, from an investor standpoint, from a decision-making as a management, CEO of a company and the like, you just don't know at the time you're making that. And that uncertainty is going to cripple this industry.
0: You can't have a crystal ball. I mean, you have an idea, but you may find that suddenly you find that this is applicable in a completely different condition that you didn't know. I mean, this happens all the time. Follow the science. Absolutely. Let's do a thought experiment here. I mean, let's look at the potential implications here for Say the NIH and all the work that they're doing, where we're seeing more and more research being driven into more and more targeted genetic based indications. It seems to me that we're getting a huge conflict of interest and in cognitive dissonance between where the IRA is and where we're even looking at research from, you know, where you're getting a lot of your baseline technologies that you're trying to develop into effective products. So the, the NIH
1: happens to be a governmental institution, and, you know, companies are, you know, commercial, potentially for profit. The reality is the scientists in both places are following the same rules. They're just following the the science. And, you know, what's what's interesting is, you know, there's this idea, I want to pursue a bigger indication. The reality is, is that the history of science and medicine invariably takes us to smaller and smaller subsets. And why is that? Because the first time we describe a disease or a presentation, you're just describing and you're bucketing, grouping patients based on similar presentations. So, some of them have some, that disease in common. Some of them may just look like they have something in common, but they're actually a different disease. As genetics, which has been a major driver of this shrinking yeah. of, you know, decreasing the size of the population. Absolutely. As genetics come in, you begin to be able to define diseases more specifically. The good news is that's exactly, A, what the patient wants, B, what society and the healthcare system wants. Because in a world where you're paying Maybe a lower price to treat a large number of people, knowing that maybe only 50% respond. Wouldn't you rather pay more if you knew that 100% of the patients responded because you very cleanly defined that disease? Cancer, you know, you used to have yeah. lung cancer. Now you have a cancer which is defined by the genetics. What's being expressed on that tumor, and you have a targeted therapy. So response rates are going up prices are going up but you're not paying for patients who are not responding. So it's good for society but it's problematic I think in terms of how the IRA for example is thinking about some of this.
0: And if we look at some of the controversy last year around say the accelerated approval which we know you know 82% of all accelerated approvals are orphan conditions. Okay, granted a lot of them are oncology, fine, but a lot of them aren't as well. 15% aren't. A certain percent of those companies require a long time to get the evidence they require. I mean, Jen's, I'm There were 44 people in that outcomes trial. It took a long time. It was an outcomes trial. It took 18 years for you to fulfill. But 44 people might have been the initial population when you applied for the FDA for the accelerated approval in the first place. I'm not saying that everybody who's taking a long time is a bad actor, and I'm not saying that everybody isn't. There probably are a couple. But statistically, you can model this, and you know the smaller the population, the longer it takes. How do you get around the politics of that? You're having to educate people on the science, I would think, who are regulating this stuff. And often, I don't think they get it. (laughs) No. And rare
1: diseases, it's all about education. I mean, by definition, rare diseases, they're major challenges. There's little knowledge, few experts. People don't care in general. If you have a disease, you care deeply. Um, No. I think if um, in the accelerated uh, review process, if biomarkers were eliminated as a path to approval, it would devastate the orphan disease market. And... um, for the obvious reasons you highlighted, and you think about when you study a, you study any disease. When you run a trial, what are you trying to do? You're trying to select a group of individuals who look as similar as possible, so that the only variable in your trial is the drug. Right. And then you come in, you give the drug. And ones on placebo, ones on drug, and you can ask the question, okay, did the drug have an impact? In rare disease, you don't have that luxury. You can't pick people who are five feet tall or six feet tall with blue eyes and whatever. You pick, you take whoever has that disease. You end up running trials where you're mixing adults and kids. Yeah. And so you have this highly heterogeneous group, number one. And number two, you have a very small number of people. So, How could you have, for example, a clinical outcome like how far you might be able to walk or whatever? If you're mixing kids and adults, you're mixing people who may be much more advanced in their disease. And so their their ability to move may be much more limited, whereas a younger individual earlier on in the disease may be able to do more. It's so heterogeneous, and then you add small numbers to that. If you can't use a biomarker strategy, those drugs will not be developed. And why does it take so long after you've gotten approval to prove "quote unquote" that ultimate clinical? It's exactly as you said. Yeah, that you're you just to accumulate those larger numbers. Again, it's in a real world observational setting. Often, uh, I mean, there's many stories people have them. I have them. When we ran our original trial for Pompe disease, an incredibly rare disease, we got it approved for infants. There's a 90% mortality rate for those kids by the age of one year. Um, we had to fly kids all around the world to get 10. Yeah, We'd have a kid diagnosed famously in Palestine. We flew him to Germany to be enrolled in the trial because again, finding these rare patients, you so that's where people underestimate the, the challenges of rare and they are very dependent on biomarkers.
0: We touched on the sort of tug of war we're having intellectually between two legislative branches right now, between the IRA that was passed, the law, and the NIH and the strategy. We're also having issues with CMS. George Radenberg, the philanthropist, he says they're starting to act like a bad insurer. I think they're starting to act like a bad HTA (laughs) that you see at Health Technology Assessor in Europe they're starting to insert themselves more and more into the FDA reimbursement decision about FDA approves. Traditionally, it's like, okay, we'll reimburse it. Now we're starting to see these things change. Now you have a very, very small orphan indication, which you're addressing with your therapy. And I'm going to try and pronounce this correctly, set melanotide, your originator. What's happening is we also have some large Vague indications for obesity and it seems like you're starting to get dragged into those debates just by virtue of the fact you're treating obesity regardless of the pathway. What is your opinion of CMS starting to diverge from FDA and starting to, you know, insert themselves like a European HTA?
1: A few things in that uh, question. <laughs> <laughs>
0: we got time. Yeah, yeah.
1: So let's, let's take, um, you know, first the general, you know, role of CMS and the like. So, again, it's worrisome. I'm a big fan of the FDA. I, I think it's an incredibly hard job. It's a tough place to work. And, you know, they're overwhelmed at the current time. But as a rule, they've done an amazing job. I mean, in the United States, you take a medicine. I mean, we can take a medicine with high confidence that, you know, it, it's going to do what it says on the bottle, you know, the label that you have. Um, it's incredibly effective. Um, you know, it, it, the, the FDA is, like I said, I think, done, and it's, it's a huge resource for us. So, one, undermining the FDA, not good, one. Two, drug development in general is global. Um, yeah. And you, you, it really should be global. And one of the things that's challenged drug development is the lack of harmonization. So you, you get the FDA telling you you need to do this to develop it. You go to Europe and the EMA. may saying
0: they, this, and then get the German IQ saying something completely different. Yeah, exactly.
1: And so those things... So, the regulators recognize that and they've tried to harmonize and there's harmonization, you know, uh, regulations and the like, which has been helpful. But then you introduce the HTA comment, uh, concept and, you know, Europe again is on the cutting edge of all of this. And, you know, this Europe is, you know, 20 plus years into this uh, and by their own admission, and I've I've gone to HTA meetings, the, the whole concept of cost effectiveness, even for the experts is incredibly challenging. And it's, like many things, you know, it's it's a function of, you know, how much data you have to really understand the natural history of the disease, the cost of treating a disease before the therapy came in, and then once the therapy comes in, how does it change, and all the different populations that might benefit. So doing a robust, Cost-effectiveness, HTA, is incredibly difficult. And even though they're, they're as good as anybody in the world, they will acknowledge it is difficult. But why is it challenging to go to Europe? It's because of the HTAs. You get the EMEA approval, and then you go through an HTA process where well, they tell you, well, you know what, we really need a trial where you're comparing against this medicine. Yeah, Or you're doing that. So it it creates, again, enormous uncertainty in the whole drug development process. And if you take the world's largest pharmaceutical market and introduce the same uncertainty that you have in Europe, again, the ripple effects of that, I think, are going to be devastating and they're not going to serve anybody. So that's number 1. Number 2 you said, you know, a bad HTA process. Back to the point, it just takes a long time. So it's not like overnight the CMS is going to develop expertise here and be really good at this in the United States. Again, as you highlighted, the it's a political football. Absolutely. And, and when it's when it's I don't want politics governing my healthcare, and so this is this is worrisome. It's played at the level of the headlines. It's played without a deeper understanding of the nuances and the challenges of doing a good HTA assessment. Um, there's a rush to judgment here, so it's a it's a long way of saying that yeah, I think CMS getting into this. The spirit of what they're trying to do, absolutely understood. The need for it at one level, you know, again, nobody's perfect, and, and certainly the industry is not perfect, and you can bring up some examples of where maybe we haven't, you know, done our best. Congress is not perfect either. I, I, think, <laughs> I, I, I think this is-
0: How can you say that? To
1: yes. <laughs> well, I think this is an area where, again, we just need to be thoughtful as we go down this road. And- Again, we'll, we'll see what happens, but I do have significant concerns about CMS playing in this field.
0: What I find interesting is you can have a drug in the U.S. where we say, okay, the quality, the quality adjusted life here, the value of your life is $150,000. Now, if I take that adjustment and I go to New Zealand, suddenly my life is only worth $15,000. Uh, in the U.K., it's about thirty to 50,000 pounds, so it's you know roughly half of what we have in the U.S. depending on the exchange rate. If we start going down this road, we're going to have to realize that there are going to be enormous consequences from this, from the standpoint of how we look at our medical establishment. If we're going to start basically taking what is a number that can be any definition arbitrary, what does this mean from your standpoint? If suddenly 10 years from now, the team that you've worked with, your investors, your financiers, everyone who's put a lot of skin in the game to make this work, suddenly you get the rug pulled out from under you and you find that something you valued at you know, X suddenly is a net loss of 60% just because of a quality number. The blunt instrument of quality doesn't seem built for personalized medicine.
1: It's, it's not. Um, maybe this anecdote, I've used it to help people think about, again, in the rare disease space, how does that pricing work from a system standpoint? So a number of years ago, we, you know, there was the famous case, you know, where the uh, Chilean miners were trapped yeah. underground. And, you know, for days the world was, you know, just watching, sort of hanging on edge. Were they going to be rescued or not rescued? And, you know, the basic question is, you know, does, do we know, does anybody know how much it costs to get those Chilean miners out of the ground? The answer is, don't
0: know. I, I can honestly tell you, I don't know.
1: I use the anecdote and I don't know either. That's the point. It didn't matter. It didn't matter. Society was willing to do what it could to help save the lives of those men who were down, you know, trapped underground. And I think in in healthcare and, um, you know, it's not that every one of these rare diseases is necessarily a life-threatening situation, but society wants to do the right thing. They want to be able to provide care to everybody who needs it. So there's a balance between you know what it would take to save the life of a rare disease, which will be a very different quality if you are going to apply a quality, you know, uh, assessment to that, and what you might think about if you are going to add, you know, a little bit of improvement to a diabetic regimen, yeah. where there's many therapies and and an enormous amount of advancement in terms of you know the ability to improve that the life of a diabetic, which will continue, but again is a different quality assessment than the world. Like I said, in this ultra rare. So, the, the nuances to quality. One size does not fit all. You know, healthcare by definition is incredibly personalized. To your point, you know, can you use qualities in this setting? Um, they're part of the tools they're not the answer and i think you know many people who are sitting in judgment here would love to just have a formula where they could just look at it makes the threshold doesn't make the threshold here's the number here's you know and so it's it's a cop out i think and and it it's a cop out from doing some of the hard work to really try to understand the value and the personalized or the value of this medication in this population and Assessing it as a standalone and then, you know, looking at perhaps you know, a larger indication with its own set of parameters.
0: These pricing bills, the IRA, they're extremely popular on both the Democrat and Republican side of the aisle. A lot of the politicians, even those here in Massachusetts, who obviously, I mean, driving around, we just drove in here to meet you today. I mean, th- this town is founded on biotech right now. It's, it, it's staggering how much is here. If you start cutting the biotech sector here in Boston, this will have an enormous impact. How do you deal with the cognitive dissonance here where the sector is really established here and it's successful and it's driving the economy? There's no question about that. Yet the political class here, really, they're not representing their constituents who are working in the sector. How are you trying to deal with that reality here in Boston? Yeah,
1: that's a big question, Wayne. (laughs) I I think... um, The bottom line is, again, it's the headlines and the politics of this are challenging. And it's not that industry has, you know, put our best foot forward always around some of these situations. And so, A, you know, the insulin story and a diabetic who can't get their insulin because they can't afford it. Now, again, the complexity of that is, you know, if you're in... A insured plan, and that plan is you know, you're getting your medications through you know, a PBM or you know, a place where the medication's been discounted. I mean, the, the actual cost of insulin and the like in that setting is not so high, and you've got your insurance. If you have no insurance and you're paying the full price, which is not discounted, of course, it, it's that's horrible, yeah. So, you know, it, it lends itself quite easily to political solutions and you know something clearly needed to be done and so so that's that's great um and fine i mean i think again as an industry we need to step up and you know be part of that solution uh i think where this goes off the rails again is the fact that people don't understand the long-term implications It's is an incredibly high risk expensive long cycle industry you know the classic you know $2 $2 billion plus to develop a drug, 10 years yeah. plus to take the time. And so when you introduce uncertainty, and I think uncertainty to me is really the the most devastating impact to IRA. It's not so much that an individual drug is going to have its revenues cut by X. You can do that math. You can manage around that and like, what you can't manage around is that uncertainty that somehow my development program 10 years from now is going to be subject to this and all my assumptions may be wrong. Yeah. And in a high-risk industry, maybe I'm an investor, I step back and say, I'm not gonna do that. I know some of the work you did in, in you know, uh, looking at this bigger question is the revenues that are going to be cut, big pharma, their liquidity, their resources to then invest in the biotech group is coming down. And so this biotech sector is going to be squeezed on both ends. The pie is gonna get smaller. The pie is gonna get smaller and The partnerships that you might be able to get where big farmer's willing to take some risk and go hand in hand with you, or their willingness to pay the money to acquire you, which is an attractive exit um, for many of the investors, that goes down, big uncertainty. And then on the other side, as I said, what people again don't realize is, yes, there are some investors, venture capitalists, who are making tremendous returns on an individual drug. On balance, they're investing across a portfolio, most of which, and the classic, you know, number, which, you know, people don't always buy in a little skeptical, but it's a real number, which is nine out of 10 things that go into clinical development fail. Now, one succeeds. It's not like you get to ignore the fact that you invested in nine things that failed. Somehow you have to make that investment calculus work. And so back to biotech. Biotech is going to be squeezed. What is one of the most valuable things the US has? It's the biotech industry. COVID was a good example. I think we were well positioned to respond in the sense, in the science. You can debate other aspects of our COVID <laughs> response, but certainly in terms of the science, we were very well positioned to respond. And it is one of the most valuable. We're leading the world here, and we're going to put it at risk in a way that people think, no, no. And the answer is yes, because you don't. You, who are making decisions, particularly in a headline short-term view, you don't understand the basics of what makes this work.
0: The U.S. government, U.S. trade with the World Trade Organization, just gave away the rights to those patents through a patent waiver. We're starting to see decisions, political decisions, and these are political decisions that are now having real impacts potentially on science. So a state actor like Brazil, like China, like South Korea can now have unfettered access with no chance for recourse. If you're the owner of those technologies to be given away, what's your opinion of a hugely successful rollout of MRNA? Now the government's saying, well, that's okay. You don't need it anymore.
1: Yeah. I mean, again, it's back to, you know, what are the fundamentals the the foundation upon which this industry is built? And, you know, probably number one is patents. Yeah. I mean, if you can't, have confidence in the fact that you can protect it. It's back to, again, just how long are you going to have to recover it, whether it's the IRA that's stepping in and going to interfere with the length of your potential return, or whether it's the risk that you're going to lose your patent um, and, and that. So, you know, patents are just so fundamental. And, and, and again, for people, it's not a patent on a specific drug per se. It's the uncertainty the precedent sets. And so that is, I think, what is the ripple effect. The pandemic example is complicated because I do think, you know, that extraordinary response on the part of Moderna, Pfizer, BioNTech, I mean, which was just amazing from a science. It was enormously enabled by the government, you know, working together and the like. And so there was other things that allowed that very short period of time to get there. It was a devastating moment with people dying all over the world at at very high rates. And so I think that's a moment where we need to take that aside. We, we need to say, look, in that setting, you know, what is the right solution here? I know, and I'm not an expert in, in all the details of that, you know, some of the, the pushback is it wasn't a patent issue. It was, you know, it's other factors which were constraining the ability of getting the vaccine to some of these emerging markets and, and places where you would um, want to make sure and the patent issue might come up. So again, I, I think I would try to separate the two and, and recognize that those are unique Um, situations not that they won't happen again but we need a way if we are going to enable um, the ability for the therapy to be produced locally to not have it undermined widespread this patent foundational piece that's so critical to this industry
0: we've been talking a lot about the impacts and the unintended consequences of the IRA but the political reality around it is still there it's still very popular to attack drug pricing Senator Tammy Baldwin has introduced something called the Smart Pricing Act. So rather than negotiating prices at year nine and 13, she's now saying, that's great. We'll just put it down at year five. And this was part of Biden's budget proposal, which has now been rolled out as a legislative package. Do you think that we're just in a situation where the Overton window has been expanded so far that we're just going to keep chopping and chopping and chopping until, I mean, literally the political consequences of reducing the industry become so great? Are you concerned about this?
1: There's a reason, a level of innovation, the amount of investment is here in the US and it's not in Europe, it's not in some other countries. Um, but it
0: used to be in Europe, David. That's what's so crazy. If you look at 1980, 60% of the innovation was there. We just, we're working on a project looking at the G, the general pharmaceutical legislation that's just been proposed, you know, the, <laughs> improving competitiveness by reducing data protection by two years. Genius. Okay, fine. We tried to say, okay, let's look at all the drugs that had been innovated. We have the chain of custody of all three hundred and sixty-three FDA approvals over the last ten years. We said, look, let's look at the drugs that were innovated in Europe, the EU, not not Switzerland, not UK, but, but the EU. And then let's look at those that were brought to market. We got seventeen out of that 363. That was it. So we said, okay, let's just look at origination then. That was fifty-three. Overwhelmingly now, the U.S. is well over 55, 60 percent of the origination, where Europe was 60 percent 40 years ago. It's amazing how much that's gone down. Are, are you seeing this in York yeah, Obviously, no, you no, are no. too.
1: Yes, for sure, and and I th- I think that makes the point, right? Which is, you had. Early, you know, number of the large pharmaceuticals based out of Europe, naturally doing you know their research close to home and not having it impacted in any way by their market. They were doing the research, developing the drugs. The market was was reimbursing them. You know, some of the fallacies in Europe right now, you know, because they would like to have this sector be more robust.
0: Bio, they've got the French have 40 people on their stand. They've brought over 40 people. They're desperate because it's a great
1: industry. (laughs) It pays well. I mean, there's all these kinds of things which would say that is exactly the future kind of industry we want for our company. The reality is many of them miss the point. And the point they miss is that they think by providing some seed grants or, you know, a few tax breaks for, you know, setting up my lab or my manufacturing site, um, that's going to change the decision making in a large pharma executive table. And no, because that little tax break and I do my research and then I bring my drug to you and you say, no, I'm not I'm going not to pay reimburse for and pay for yeah. my drug. So. People think they're disconnected. They're not disconnected. And, and again, the U.S. has this incredibly robust biopharmaceutical industry because it's been a market which rewards innovation, which means not just that the scientists are here, but those early high-risk dollars are here. The government, you know, one of the things, well, let's just have the NIH develop all the drugs.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah.
1: Right, exactly. So, I mean, that wouldn't work. And that's where, again, I think, you know, a lot of the politicians, and back to your question about if we just keep ramping back, I mean, you know, ramping back, the timing will just accelerate the devastation that's going to sure. happen. What What's missing, again, I, I think, in some of this discussion and debate is it's not that next year things will be radically different or even in three, four, five years. Yeah, things it's, will be 10, rad- 15, it's 10,
0: 20. Yeah, exactly. It's Ten.
1: The decisions that are made on the drugs that might've come to market. I think you had this in your research. It's 10 years. It's happening now. Yeah. You won't see it for 10 years.
0: What about Asia? We looked at a CAR T portfolio from 2018. We looked at all the CAR T studies that were going on. If you look at where things were four years ago, China was doing 240 clinical developments. US was around 140. Europe was at 40. Now this is four years ago. Do you see a lot of the advanced science moving to Asia now?
1: So, A, we should be highly attentive to the extent that we are competing specifically with China. I mean, they, they have done a tremendous amount to make it highly attractive to do research there well-known, you know, many people, uh, Chinese citizens who have trained here in the United States, gone they've gone back. Yes. Why have they gone back? They've gone back because they get better funding. They can do better research. They, And then, of course, you've got a population which is large. And so, you know, you can study, you can run the trials. You've got, I think, increasingly a, a venture capital market where people are willing to put dollars at risk to support this early. You've got a, you know, burgeoning... Uh, Equity market there and the like. So the, all of the ingredients, which we might have thought were a bit more U.S. specific and advantages to the U.S., they're going or gone. Um, so, yeah, I think China specifically is going to rapidly become, a, it's already a It's a power, but yeah.
0: it's a power. If you had Jake Class Elizabeth Warren, Ed Markey here around the table right now, what recommendation would you make to them? I
1: think uh, maybe a very simple one, which is, A, with a context or caveat, look, we understand what, what you're trying to manage here, and, and we, as an industry, I think, let's let's work on a way we can achieve, you know, the goal that you are desiring. But let's go slow. And let's go slow, because we, none of us, can fully see the implications of what this is going to do. It took us a long time to build this industry, it may not take so long to shrink it, or I wouldn't say it'll go away completely, but, but certainly to, to dramatically change its look. And you don't just turn it back on. And so it's going to take time. Go slow.
0: David Meeker, Chairman and CEO of Rhythm Pharmaceuticals. David, thank you for your time today. It's been great. Thank you, Dwayne. The executive producer of the Vital Health Podcast is Dwayne Schultes. Our editor is Mark Brodeen. Our project manager is Gwen Laughlin. The Vital Health Podcast is a production of Vital Transformation, LLC, copyright 2023.